Well, welcome to everyone who's joining us for today's conversation with Dr. Lynn Kohick. My name is Tyler Tavares. I am an associate pastor at Coburg Alliance Church in Coburg, Ontario. My co-host today is Luana Buckle. She's part of Coburg Alliance Church, and she has a kind of a special interest in our conversation today. Luana is a PhD candidate in history at Western University. And so this will make more sense when we get to the back end of our interview, but she jumped at the chance to talk with Lynn about some of our subject matter for today. Lynn was a New Testament professor at Wheaton College for 18 years before taking on an administrative role at Denver Seminary for a few years, and she's now the provost, the dean of academic affairs, and she continues to teach in the area of New Testament and women in theology at Northern Seminary. Lynn has also authored numerous books, including commentaries on Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and a couple books related to women in the first five centuries of the church. Lynn, it is a pleasure to be hosting this conversation with you today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Tyler, and thank you, Luana, for inviting me to have a conversation. And let me just say that I am scheduled to produce the commentary on Philemon. Okay, so, okay. It's forthcoming. <laughs> I appreciate your eschatological confidence right. there, that it, it will, will actually happen. happen. It will happen. That's <laughs> yes. great. That's great. Well, this conversation today, it's really about two things. The first is we want to address some of the tricky texts in the New Testament that are related to gender roles generally and in the church kind of in particular. And second, there are these stories of women in the church in the first five or so centuries of the church's life. And Lynn has co-written a book called Christian Women in the Patristic World. And we're going to get to that a little bit later, but there are some neat stories there. And, uh, and we're going to dig in a little bit. I'm going to start by asking Lynn if you'll share a little bit of your own journey. So the personal, maybe some of the personal journey, the professional journey on the topic of women in theology or women in leadership. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Um, I, uh, I was raised uh, United Methodist in somewhat of like nominally until I was in high school. And then especially my, especially my mom and then a little bit later, my dad um, had a renewal of faith and I began attending uh, an evangelical free church. That church did not hold to, uh, that particular church did not hold to the ordination of women. Um, and so my earliest kind of engagement with the question was one that kind of challenged the notion that women could um, be ordained. And, and that kind of framed all of the question and which is a shame because I don't think the ordination question is really what's at the surface or even deep in, in the New Testament. But that was what was being talked about when I was in high school and then in college. When I went on to get my PhD, which I went right after undergrad straight to the PhD program, in part because the, uh, my church would not write a letter of recommendation for me to study at seminary. I had just assumed I'd go to seminary and get a seminary degree hmm. in Bible because that's what I wanted to, to look at. And uh, they 
they would sign a letter if I wanted to do Christian education or I wanted to do, um, I'm trying to think what else, but anyway, something like that, but not, not Bible. And so I, I do chuckle now thinking that I'm a provost here at Northern and I was the provost at Denver Seminary. Yes. <laughs> God has a sense of humor yeah. in all of that, yeah. but I do not have an actual seminary degree. Um, so it, it has felt to me somewhat like a, uh, a struggle to achieve what I've desired to do, which was to teach the Bible. Mm-hmm almost from the beginning. But there's another piece of it also. When I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is a uh, just secular university, it's never been connected with a divinity school like Harvard or Yale. I had a class on feminism and Christianity. This was in the mid-1980s. And two events really stick out to me in that. First, out of a class of about 20 women, there was only one other woman who would claim to be a Christian. She was much more in the progressive, she was in a mainline denomination and in a progressive wing of that. Everybody else was post-Christian. And I thought to myself, how, how really, really sad, because they have felt burned by the church and so have rejected Jesus. Mm. And I really have wanted ever since that time to, uh, to distinguish the mistakes that the church makes in relation to its treatment of women mm-hmm. and the love that Jesus has for all people, mm. including women. Mm. And so that was, that's one aspect. Also, I used to have to commute. I did it by train into, um, into class and being the good evangelical, I would have my devotions, you know, I'd get on the train at six in the morning and I'd have my devotions and, uh, the, my translation used the masculine pronoun for generic, mm-hmm. you know, humans. And so it was always he this, he that. And I remember especially one time where I just cried out almost in tears, Lord, am I anywhere in here? Mm. So I had this experience of as a woman in my own tradition, being challenged about wanting to go deeper in my understanding of the biblical text. And then also being with other women who I longed to introduce uh, or reintroduce them to the love of Jesus and have them not reject the church, even as in a certain way, my own church was at least rejecting what I had hoped to do, um, whereas they wouldn't have rejected a man who had those, those desires. So I would say those are kind of my formative experiences that, you know, have contributed to um, where I am today. Yeah. So, and along the way, I imagine there's a lot of wrestling with the text itself. And so, you know, having grown up United Methodist is sort of interesting because there is a history of, you know, the ordination of women or women preaching and having all sorts of, you know, involvement all through the church. But then, you know, with the shift to the evangelical free church, did you, did you have some difficulties with understanding the biblical text in relation to, 
you know, women in leadership or had that been settled for you at an early age? No, it wasn't settled. No, I really, uh, I, I was just coming to the text anew, really. Uh, being in high school, being in the youth group there, um, really wanting for the, as an, you know, a young adult to try and uh, get into the text and find out what it, uh, yeah, what it meant yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a journey. Well, speaking of the text, let's get into it. Thank you very much for sharing that. I think it's great to hear a bit of, you know, someone's own narrative, someone's own story in relation to all of that and why sometimes it is deeply uh, personal in some ways as we navigate uh, challenging texts like this. Uh, So let's start with the Gospels. It's a great place to start. We're going to start with the Gospels. So as we were talking, it's interesting. the question, I suppose, that emerged as we were talking ahead of time, Lynn, was was Jesus' approach to women in the Gospels. So does he introduce something for us in his treatment of women in the Gospels, and where can we find that? Right, yeah. Well, I think um, it's always good to start with Jesus, first of all. That, that's always a good... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is always Jesus. But I, I do think that's especially important for evangelicals who tend to go straight to Paul. Mm-hmm. But of course, Paul goes straight to Jesus. So it's it's okay for us yes. <laughs> to start with Jesus. And I would say that Jesus is not unique, like an alien, you know, from another planet kind of thing. But what I would say is that he lives out the best principles uh, and the practices within the law, within his uh, Jewish heritage. So um, in several ways, I think Jesus, Jesus's approach to women is, is consistent with how God made men and women for flourishing and to live in to their discipleship and their faithfulness. First, I think we see Jesus as expecting women to be interested in theology. Mm. We secondly see Jesus as paying attention to women, having conversations with them. That that shows a respect that um, just affirms the the humanity of of women. And then third, I would say he shows them as capable as exemplars of discipleship for women and men, not just examples for other women Mm -hmm. to follow. So I would say that, um, let's say being interested in theology. Um, If we look at the Samaritan woman, for example, um, one aspect of that story that I think is missing is her or is misjudged, is her interest in uh, theological questions. Mm. I've, I've seen commentaries that say that when she talks to Jesus and he mentions that the man you're with now is not uh, your, your husband, that she then turns to, oh, you're, you're a prophet. Let me ask you this question, as though she wants to divert attention away mm. from what commentators feel is a sordid past. Mm -hmm. I I don't think it is. And we can talk about Mm -hmm. that in in a moment, but I think just also there's, there's this reluctance, it seems like to 
imagine that a woman would have theological questions. I mean, she's a Samaritan about a hundred years before Jesus. One of the Jewish kings, Hasmonean kings, destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. So the wound is rather fresh for the Samaritans. They're uh, there are a lot of questions. What is God doing? And they they read the Torah, the five books of Moses. And so they're they're fluent with at least part of the law. And and so they're she is obviously curious, curious enough that she wants to talk to this prophet. Um, I, I would say we also have <clears throat> in continuing this idea of women interested in theology you have Martha, who in John 11 um, greets Jesus as he is just coming into town to, we learn later, raise Lazarus. But at that point, that he hasn't done anything. She greets him, and they begin talking about the resurrection of the dead. Well, resurrection of the dead is a specific doctrine. Not all Jews held to it. The Pharisees did. And Somehow, Martha is trained in the Pharisaic assumptions about the bodily resurrection of the dead, and Jesus starts talking with her about that. And then he, he makes this amazing proclamation about his own, in his own self, he's the resurrection and the life. And, and you know, he doesn't have to elaborate on that. She gets it. She understands it. And I think... We, we, I don't know. I've never heard someone really dig into the fact that they had this very deep theological conversation, it's, which are very, within the Gospel of John, um, having these kinds of conversations uh, is incredibly important. It's one of the vehicles the Gospel uses to promote who Jesus is. So we, we see the uh, emphasis on theology that... Um, yeah, that Jesus has. They're worthy of attention. They can be exemplars of discipleship. That's uh, that's wonderful. So we get a little bit of a, a foundation with Jesus uh, for maybe what we're going to find as we navigate some of those trickier texts in Paul, right? So if we, oh yeah, yeah. and exactly, yeah. So I think. Um, we think of discipleship, for example, we tend not to look at the Samaritan woman as an example of discipleship, but just think what, what happens. She goes back to her village, says, I think I've found the Christ. He told me everything I had ever done. Not in a sense that she needed to repent from sin. Um, and I'll yeah. come back to that. Yeah. But, um, but that she thinks she's found the Messiah. Now, there, there's something in her character that the town's men and women must know her as somehow theologically astute, such that they listen to her and they believe her testimony. And so many of the town come to, come to faith. Yes. And they say later, Oh, now that we've met Jesus, we we do believe uh, not only because of what you told us, but because we've seen. But they believed because of her testimony. Whereas the disciples, at pretty much almost the same time, were in the village, and I guess didn't share Jesus's testimony at all. Yeah. So no one comes to faith 
from the disciples testimony, but so almost the, the whole town comes to, comes to faith because of her testimony. And in this story of the Samaritan woman, Jesus tells the, teaches the disciples that the fields are ripe for harvest. Mm -hmm. Go into the fields, they're ripe for harvest. And you, you step back and you say, well, who actually is doing that? It's the Samaritan. Mm -hmm. If I can just uh, maybe go down a rabbit trail, but it's an important one with the Samaritan woman. I've uh, so often we see her as immoral. And I think most likely what we have in, in her situation, and I've written about this in my book on uh, women in the world of the uh, earliest Christians. Um, and also there's a new book out by Karen Reeder on the Samaritan woman that I highly recommend. Um, but just to sum up without defending my answer, but to sum up, I think she probably was a widow a number of times and maybe was divorced once. But when you think of like the story of Naomi, how she lost her husband and both sons within a decade, it wouldn't, it would be tragic, but not unheard of. I mean, people died young <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. And so what is unusual about this situation is that she was married five times. And I am unaware of any other person that was married and then not married, had, had five spouses, and then a sixth relationship anywhere in the literature in the first century. There is a Agrippa, who was a very good friend of Octavian Caesar Augustus, when he died, he was married to his fifth wife. He had divorced twice and he had been a widower twice. But what's so amazing about Jesus's knowledge is that this wasn't a good guess. That's what she perceived. When Jesus said, you've had five husbands, she thinks, how do, how do you know me? That If he had said you had three husbands, I'd be like, well, okay, that's a nice guess because that wouldn't have been terribly unusual, but five mm -hmm. is prophetic. And then to say the man you're with now is not your husband. That also shows he can see what her, without, without having ever been to the town, he knows her public life. And the man that she's with now is not her husband. It's quite possible that she is uh, a concubine. Mm -hmm which would be for this time period a, um, a legal arrangement that did not confer on the woman all the rights and privileges of having a wife, of, of being a wife, but it did obligate her um, to only share the, the bed with her um, quote-unquote husband. She could be charged with adultery. Um, but if there were any children... The, the, they would not be considered legitimate. And so one possible, out of many, there are several different possibilities on what's going on with her life, but I think one that we know is an option that has happened in, in other situations is that as a concubine, um, maybe the man she's with is has older children who do not want to share an inheritance with uh, 
a new baby that yeah. his, their father produced. So he he takes her as a concubine and thus protects his inheritance from his with for his older kids. It's possible this was a Roman soldier who could not marry until they retired, or it's someone of a higher class, especially if it's a Roman citizen in this area, um, living in this area, they, uh, just, just the way the social classes worked, um, a, a legitimate marriage in the, uh, that Roman citizens could achieve would not be possible. I know I'm given maybe too much information, but I really think it's important because we get so hung up on the man she's with now is not her husband as though she is somehow wicked or immoral. And I just cannot imagine a woman with that kind of reputation in the town to have brought everyone to Christ. Mm -hmm. The text never says that she, um, uh, that she changed in her countenance, like the Gerizine demoniac was in his right mind. You know, there's no, there's nothing in that. So that's a long winded answer, but it brings in the, the need to study the text really closely and note that Jesus does not condemn her for sin, although he does condemn others in the gospels for sinning. It, it shows the, the importance of understanding the historical context of things and especially how the family structures were put together, for, you know, so from an historical uh, standpoint. And, um, and I think literarily, I didn't mention the parallel, but if you look at um, chapter one of John and you look at the story of Nathaniel, there's another example of Jesus knowing a person before they actually met. And the proper response is belief. Both Nathaniel and the Samaritan woman do that. So there's um, just a, a close reading. And in the midst of all of that close reading, a, uh, a commitment to avoid sexist assumptions about women and their character yes. <laughs> goes a long way. <laughs> well, that's great. So we've got, you mentioned three kind of total approaches maybe that Jesus had. One is just affirming, Jesus very much is affirming women's interest in theology uh, in the New Testament. We have, or in the Gospels rather, we have women as actually exemplary models for both men and women. And then there's the third one. What was the third one that you mentioned? Just that women are worthy of attention, that he listens yeah. to women. And um, the there are a couple of different places, maybe the woman with the flow of blood or the hemorrhaging woman, um, you know, by, um, by stopping and talking with her, he's not shaming her or calling her out. He allows for her faith to be made public, right? She's able to publicly affirm that she believed in his power. And so just by those, um, yeah, those that that would be one example, but yes, just the care, yeah, the attention that, he that he's giving, speaking to and them. so there must be something unique about the attention that Jesus is then giving. Is that right? I mean, for him to give, for example, the bleeding woman attention, would no one really expect Jesus a rabbi, something you know, with with Jesus sort of um, reputation? to offer that kind of attention. 
Is that what's unique about it or is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I want to be real careful not to, and, and you are not going in this direction, but sometimes when people talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, it can become anti-Jewish mm. as though, you know, all the rabbis were really bad and Jesus is really good. Um, Jesus is really good and he's really good for men and for women. And I think he, one of the key things that Jesus does is he makes all things clean. So the, the uh, Gentile and the woman experience uncleanness at different times or always, if you're a Gentile, and prevent them because of ritual purity concerns from entering into the holier spaces of the temple. And that just has to do with ritual purity. Jesus takes all of that up into himself as he fulfills the law. So you don't have that uh, concern. There's also the concern um, in Jesus's day of what counted as work on the Sabbath. And again, you have a, a, a teacher, Jesus, who is focused on the, um, as he will say, you know, the intent of the law rather than trying to nuance its um, or control its its um, it's it's being lived out. So um, this healing the crippled woman uh, on on Sabbath, someone who was bent over, he releases her and straightens her up. I love. I mean, I just can imagine that image. It's a great image for how we can think of Jesus helping women flourish. So she straightens up, but she straightens up on Sabbath, and he gets. Um, accused of just not being a faithful follower by healing on the Sabbath. And, you know, Jesus says that's, that's not the intent of the law. Uh, the, the Sabbath was made so that humans can flourish, not humans were not made to somehow serve the Sabbath. So that, that's where I would say Jesus's approach is unique. Um, he, he reinterprets the law to help people flourish and he he addresses those he challenges and rebukes those uh, leaders who are hypocritical in their application of the of the law and you know um, most recently uh, in the United States and I imagine also in Canada we saw the hypocrisy of leaders during the COVID-19 uh, lockdowns, where there'd be these rules that would be put out for all of us, the average, you know, hoi polloi, the average person. And then we'd find out that that um, some a governor or a, you know, yeah. a, a leader of some sort was not in any way obeying those restrictions. And it's frustrating. Jesus calls that out for sure. But he, he does see, I think, that the law of God as wanting people to flourish. And that's what he tries to, tries to do. And as the, the law was interpreted that inhibited women, Jesus was unique in, in challenging that and showing a different way. That's great. So we have a good foundation as we approach some of these tricky texts. So let's do that yes. if we can. There are, um, you know, if you're familiar, if you're watching and you're familiar with the New Testament, there are a handful of these texts that really get cited and that, that we sort of go to when it comes to 
women in, in Paul and uh, and the approach to gender roles, things like that. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 2 and 3. There are some others as well. But those are the ones that we're going to treat kind of now in, in our session. And so we're going to start with Ephesians 5, and we'll work through the others uh, that I just mentioned. And if you're following along with us, you might even pause the video, grab your Bible, and open to the passages that we're going to be talking about. Maybe give them a read through ahead of time. We won't be reading them together, but if you're just familiar, just remind yourself of what these passages sort of say. That'll help as you navigate um, this conversation. So, so Lynn, the floor is yours. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, okay. and even maybe start with why 21? Because my Bible, for example, mm-hmm. I've got a little bit of an older NIV, but it actually starts in 22. Yes, yes. And that uh, in the ancient world, uh, in the earliest text, there were no numbers. So no verse numbers, which I think would have made it hard to, to learn uh, the, or study the Bible in one, in one sense. On the other hand, our verses sometimes obstruct the flow of the thought. Of, uh, in the in the Greek text, yeah. So okay, well, <clears throat> I actually am going to start not even at twenty one, but actually at eighteen. Okay. In verse eighteen, we have a command: be filled with the Spirit. And then we have five, what are called participles, which are verbs that connect up to the main verb, the finite verb. So. <clears throat> Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, it means that you speak to each other with psalms and hymns. It means you're singing, you're making music. It means you're always giving thanks to the Lord for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It means that you're submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. And we want to kind of move in our imagination into this house church setting where this is this letter is being read and probably they have uh, invited the Holy Spirit. They probably have been giving thanks to God. There probably has been some Psalms sung. And so, excuse me, then we have uh, Paul saying, submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. And that's in verse 21 but it's part of that whole flow from 18 uh, through 21 from a grammatical standpoint. Then you move to 22, wives, it says in the Greek, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Paul doesn't repeat the, ver- mm. the participle submit. So we know that 21 and 22 from a grammatical perspective have to go together. You can't separate them. Otherwise, there's no verb in 22. So... The question then becomes, is 22 trying to um, expound on and fill out what uh, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ means? Or is it trying in some way to uh, set apart a separate category that has particular, uh, maybe restrictions would be too strong a word, but in other words, what is the relationship between 21 and 22? <clears throat> well, I think um, the that's a question that we need to hang on to. But what I like to do at this point, because everybody gets really 
nervous about the whole submit mm-hmm. thing, right? But we've already seen that everyone submits to each other out of reverence yeah. for Christ, out of reverence for Christ. That is awe and fear in the church setting. Each of you is, re- is submitting to each other. Well, there's another command. And the, the command is not submit to each other, right? That's the participle that connects with, be filled with the spirit. But there's another command in this overall passage, and it comes up in verse 25. Husbands love, uh, love your wives. Three different times, Paul commands husbands to love their wives in this passage. Um, They are, um, the, the love here is uh, expanded to mean as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. So they uh, are to love in verse 25, verse 28. They ought to love, which is a command. The, the command is the word ought, but ought to love. And then finally, uh, verse 33, love your wife. So three times the husband is commanded. The wife is, there's no command forms in 22 through 24 verses Mm -hmm. 22 through 24 you have that now in 25 so it's a command form and it's um the verb to love so i want to i want to play a little bit with what paul would have been getting at here in contrast to what the ephesian men and women would have expected if they heard um another you know, just regular rhetorician coming through Ephesus. The love that Paul enjoins here is a self-sacrificial love that thinks of the other first. That's what Christ did with his self-sacrificial love. Also, this love is a reciprocal love. If you look at verse 29, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body. So he wants, in, um, he mentions also in 28, to the husband to think of his wife and to love his wife as though she was his own body. The reciprocal piece here is that there's an invitation then, I think, for the wife to think of the husband as her own body. There's a there's a mutual reciprocity that is expected or invited here. Paul makes it more explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. They had been asking, the Corinthians had asked about relation, sexual relations in marriage, and so Paul is going to spend some time talking about that. But he starts kind of with this general principle, and he says, in verse four, that uh, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Okay, that's typical, cultural. But then Paul goes on and he says, and the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife Mm -hmm. does. And I am sure that someone in the Corinthian church raised their hand and said, hey, wait, Could you repeat that? (laughs) Because that's gospel right there. Like that is gospel. That is countercultural. There is no place that you would find in Jewish or Greco-Roman writings at this time that would have given the wife the authority over her husband's body. I mean, I don't want to get into 
specifics about the marriage bed and sexual relations and all of that, that I'm sure counselors uh, trained in that area can do. But from a theological perspective, what this says is that husbands and wives should enjoy a mutual and mutually self mutually satisfying uh, relationship, even in the most intimate of spaces, the bedroom. So assuming that Paul's consistent in his message to the churches, which I think we all do, then when he says that the husband is to love his wife as though she's his own body, he, he's inviting this kind of mutuality. Um, and he talks about the two becoming uh, one flesh, quoting from uh, Genesis. So that, that is, um, that's crucial to keep in mind when we go then back up to verse 22, where wives are wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So if all believers are to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, and the submission then is controlled by, by uh, who Christ is, what the gospel proclaims, then the wives are to be respectful, because um, submit in, in this context carries a lot of the idea of being respectful, um, honoring might be another way to say it. Um, and so that, that happens, but it happens uh, as a testimony to the Lord. It, it's not insisted upon based on the wider cultural assumptions that the female is inferior to the male, right? So the female's not submitting to the male or the wife to the husband because there is an innate inferiority to her that requires this kind of, or mandates this on, this type of honor being given. No, it's in the context of the Lord, the wife shows her respect. And of course, this kind of respect is the respect that each believer gives the other believer, right? So it's really important to, to recognize this is not a submission that is degrading, um, that is uh, in, in any way suggests a hierarchy of value or even a hierarchy of roles. And, and I think of that because we come to the, the language of head and body here, and often uh, we hear the word head, which is in Greek, kephale, mean as meaning uh, leader. And as a metaphor in both English and also in Hebrew, you can say head and you mean leader, mm -hmm. like the head of the house, the head of the company, fine. But in Greek, it's less than 2%, and I, I would say closer to 1% of the time that we would find the term kephale used metaphorically to indicate leader. Wow. It, it is, and, and this is, those are numbers that I take from a fellow named Wayne Grudem, who really wants for head to mean leader. And in his analysis, he gets just under 2%. And included in that 2% are texts from the Greek 
translation of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Septuagint. And that really is not uh, good data to use because it's a translation from Hebrew. Remember I said that Hebrew does, their word for head does, can't can mean metaphorically uh, leader. So if you're translating that into Greek, sometimes you have to use kephale, but the overarching context of the Hebrew, translating it into Greek, the Greek reader would realize, oh, the kephale is being used here in a very different sort of way, right? In other words, it's the Hebrew that's driving the meaning and the, the Greek translation is just trying to keep up. This is especially true if there's body parts mentioned, like in the beginning of Ephesians chapter one, we find Paul quoting from the Old Testament, from the Psalms that um, God, the father has put all things under his feet, that is the son's feet and made him head. So Paul uh, being, you know, a Jew, very familiar with the Old Testament language is comfortable using head and feet. And, and he recognizes that that can be a, um, a, a useful word picture. But throughout um, Ephesians, starting at the, in chapter one, where we learn that the church is Christ's body, we find that Paul develops the idea of head, not as though Jesus is a leader, but rather that Jesus is our savior. And that's what we find here also. The idea that Jesus gives himself, right, to make her holy, to to uh, to be to, to giving himself so that she will flourish. That's that's that picture of savior. That's not it's not leader. Now Jesus does lead, but what I'm saying is kephale head is not the metaphor that communicates that reality, and so head here most likely means something like either the source of life, um, like we would say the headwaters of a river where the river forms, you know, maybe up in the mountains or something, the headwaters of the river. But head can also have this sense of like public preeminence. So the, um, if we, or, or it could be a synecdoche, a, a synecdoche for the whole. An example of that would be um, if I say um, I'm driving past a, a field in, in, uh, in farmland and I say, oh, there's 30 head of cattle out there. Now, I don't mean that there's just these heads. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> I mean, there's actual cows, you know, 30 of them. But as, a, as it becomes a synecdoche. And in the ancient world, the family was led by the oldest male and was represented that way. So, I mean, we don't, um, what, what I want to draw attention to is the things that would have surprised the Ephesians. And what would have surprised them is this insistence that husbands love their wives. I mean, it's not like husbands didn't love their wives at this time, but the love that was expressed was, a um, was, I don't know how else to say it, but self-centered. It sounds self-centered to us. That is, the wife showed her love by doing what her husband wanted, by honoring her husband's family and her husband's God. And 
um, promoting his work. It, it was very, from her standpoint, it was all about her husband. And he received all that and then tried to be very nice. But it, it's clear there is a difference. And the, they will describe it like, you know, the soul, which is the important part, manages and controls, but in a nice way, the body. Um, so those are some of the images that are used more widely. So Paul here, when he says love, it's pretty, yeah. pretty dramatic as he defi- how he defines love. I've had people ask, well, why didn't Paul just say to the husband, well, you submit to your wives? Would have made my life easier. Yeah. Would have made your lives easier, <laughs> right? If we had just done that. But um, Paul is writing to actual people in the first century who are living in a particular culture that, like any culture, there's certain kind of acceptable practices. And then, you know, beyond that, um, it's just hard to imagine something different. For example, um, as a Canadian example, I was recently up in the beautiful city of Vancouver. I was doing some teaching there. And um, uh, there are lovely beaches that are there. Now, my husband and I, raised in South Central Pennsylvania, would go to the Atlantic Ocean and, you know, summer holidays there. But there's a beach in Vancouver where people are bathing suit optional. And we didn't see those signs initially. <laughs> and uh, so we are just enjoying the, the view. And then we're just a little surprised <laughs> at what was included in the view. And, uh, and so, you know, the, that ev- everybody, the, everybody else, though, knew what to expect. And, and so kind of accommodated themselves given that reality. That wasn't a reality that we had we had been uh, expecting yes. or familiar yes. with. So, in the same way, I would, or in a similar way, when Paul, if Paul had said to the husbands, "Submit to your wives," the husbands would have said, "What, what does that mean? What, what does that even look like? I, I don't. I, how would I do that? Because legally, she's a minor. I, she can't." she has to have a legal guardian sign anything that happens in the courts. Mm-hmm. So how do I, how do I submit her in that? And mm-hmm. I, in, in the wider society, like I, I'm the paterfamilias. I, how, how do I not be that? Do you see what I'm yeah. saying? And so he, he has this culture and it's different than our culture. Um, in a lot of ways, in terms of women's rights, they can vote, they can own property. Well, in the ancient world, women could own property too, but um, aside from their husband. But all that to say is it would have been, I think, impossible for a husband to live out the charge to submit to his wife. But the call to love, well, that would have sounded familiar. And so Paul says, okay, let, let me tell you what this love is. And that's the gospel speaking in that that's the, cause the husbands would never have heard anything close, close to that. So then in, I'm just loving how much the grant grammar matters. Historical context yeah. matters. My children are rolling their eyes. Cause I bang on about this all the time, but it just, 
you've illustrated so beautifully how important that historical context and the grammar of the text that we read in translation, how important it is to understand it's not exactly how our NIV Bibles or whatever translation are, are putting it. So thank you so much for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that we have to recognize we're entering into a foreign territory in a way, you know, much like our beach, my husband and I's beach experience. You know, it's like, oh, I thought it was the same because it's marriage. Right. And I have marriage today, but actually it's it's not completely the same. And so I have to be alert to what those differences are so that I can make sure I'm in step with what uh, the gospel is calling us to. So the key in Ephesians 5, you know, kind of in these segments, is not about establishing hierarchy. You would say that that's true. Uh, It is about discovering sort of how you actually live out being filled with the Spirit and therefore submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ, kind of husband to wife, in a way that also respects the sort of the public face of a husband, if he does have yeah, a, I think so. yeah, mm-hmm. if he is the, you know, to everyone else, he, he kind of fulfills a bit of that sort of role. And if there's some legal, what's interesting to me, and I hadn't ever heard this before, is that actually if, is any woman who's married to a man considered a minor and therefore in a legal context, they actually have to have someone sign. Did I hear that correctly? You yeah. did. I mean, maybe I'm over, I'm not a lawyer, so maybe I'm using the term minor incorrectly, but for every document that is submitted in the court, they need a male guardian. If it's their husband, maybe it's an uncle or a brother, maybe even a friend, but it, it has to be signed by a male. Okay. And that's yeah. not just an ancient thing either. Like that extends right into the 20th century when women were legally declared to be human beings and legal entities. Like mm. That's that's pretty recent. Sadly, yes. That's interesting. Yes. So so then does Ephesians affect, because our next text is Colossians, Colossians 3, 18 to 19. Yeah. It's much shorter than the text that we just navigated. Mm-hmm. We can move on to Colossians mm-hmm. if, if we're ready to. Is there anything else that we should know about Ephesians, Lynn? What I would say, and this is a segue into Colossians, uh, in both places, Paul talks about showing no favoritism. And it has, uh, in in Colossians, it's um, at at a slightly different place in the argument, but it's it's there. In Ephesians, it's highlighted a little bit more. It's in Paul's charge to the owners, slave owners, that they are to treat their slaves um, uh, in, uh, without threatening, um, and that behind that argument is that God shows no favoritism. And I, sometimes when I'm teaching the Ephesians or the household codes, I don't start with the marriage text. I start with the slavery text because Everybody knows the right answer, which is, hey, slavery, the institution of slavery, it's bad, God, it's not God's ultimate best, you know. And and we wish, I certainly wish that Paul had put in bold print, uh, you know, institution of slavery must be abolished or something like that. But instead, he says, slaves, obey your masters. And 
then he goes on to describe what the slave can do. And you find out the slave can actually be a model disciple, Mm. um, which is very countercultural at that time. And then he turns to the uh, owners and he says, you can't threaten your slaves. Well, the whole institution of slavery is built on domination, right? And so if I can't dominate, well, then, then what? And Paul goes on to say, God shows no favoritism. Well, that completely undercuts the institution of slavery because it was based on favoritism. There was a sense that the free person, especially the free male, was the ideal. They were most favored. And the slave, even if they got freed, became in this middle category called a freed man or a freed woman. Nevertheless, the stain and the shame of slavery never completely washed off. But Paul says God shows no favoritism. So the owner is publicly, because remember this letter is read publicly, is convicted uh, or should have been convicted that they are without any special privilege. Mm. So when I look at God shows no favoritism, and then I read husbands love your wives, nobody treats their their own bodies in a in a you know, uh, oh, let me say it positively. People treat their bodies well, right? They want to feed their body. They want to care for their body. Um, they show it favor. Um, and so in the same way, the husband should do that to the wife. In other words, it's not the wife's job or responsibility to take care of her husband uh, because he's the more favored one. No, he loves her like Christ loves the church and gave himself for the church. So the God shows no favoritism piece, which we also find in Colossians, is a really important theme That's interesting. Yeah. as it relates to just the church, you know, overall, because it's a refrain that James uses when he addresses the misuse of wealth. It's the refrain that we find in Acts 10 when Cornelius, the Gentile God-fearer, um, receives the Holy Spirit and is welcomed into the church. So God shows no favoritism is a gospel theme. And we find it in the household codes, which suggests to us there's no, there's no hierarchy of worth. And by extension, there's not a hierarchy of roles because the roles that are often assigned to wives are roles that have a secondary importance as it relates to um, decision-making and and uh, agency, uh, personal agency. So is there anything left to say about Colossians 3, 18 to 19? I don't think so. I think if I, it, it's brief, it's very brief, but it fits tightly with uh, Ephesians. So then let's, uh, let's move forward. Let's talk about... Um, First Timothy two. This is a tricky one too. Yeah. First Timothy two, eleven to fifteen, yeah. and first Timothy three. And these really get into what's important for us in particular at Cobra Alliance Church because you know we're interested in this conversation around women as elders specifically. 
And so, uh, and, and a lot of this interview is kind of fitting within this broader conversation that our, that our, um, you know, our church is having. And so if we could, let's dig in first Timothy two and first Timothy three. All right. Yes. Well, and just to mess you up again, Tyler, I'm going to start in chapter one. Perfect. (laughs) Sorry. But I think it sets it up in a couple of ways. Right out of the gate, after saying hello uh, to Timothy, and this letter would have been read to the whole church. It wouldn't have just been Timothy's private letter. Paul says in verse three, hey, I'm commanding, uh, I'm he wants Timothy to command certain people not to teach false doctrines, hmm. not to, they, they are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And those things produce, Paul says, unhelpful speculation. They don't advance uh, God's work. Um, in fact, some, he says in verse six, have departed from, from thinking about true things and they, they, they are just meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. Hmm. So I just want to set the stage that there is false teaching going on here in Ephesus. Straight away, we know that. Then when we turn to chapter two, let's start at verse eight, where Paul says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. That's a context of worship from the very beginning, actually, of chapter two. Paul is talking about praying and giving thanksgiving and intercession for, then he lists a variety of people and the government and whatnot. So when we come to eight, he wants men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing. So he doesn't want these uh, church worship times to to be a place where there's disputes. Mm -hmm. And we've just seen from chapter one that that's what's starting to happen, right? Is they, there's all this meaningless talk and there's this, uh, their controversial speculation that's happening. And it's entering into even this space where they're praying and worshiping. In the same place where they're praying and, uh, and worshiping, uh, Paul says, I want the women to dress modestly. I want them to adorn themselves with good deeds and not with these elaborate hairstyles and and whatnot. Well, the um, most likely what Paul is referring to here is a um, uh, a way in which women would dress when they wanted to honor Artemis of the Ephesians. So that's another. When we read Ephesians and also uh, the, the letters to Timothy that ha- that when he is in Ephesus, just imagine there is a big shadow cast by the Temple of Artemis, which doesn't exist anymore. There's only a pillar that people have kind of put up to mark where it where it was. But in the ancient world, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I think it. They estimate maybe four times as large as the Parthenon. Maybe some people have been to the Parthenon in in Athens. Yeah, and the Parthenon is huge, but this was four times bigger. I mean, it just just dominated the landscape. And we have a novel that was written in the first century 
that describes some of the festivals that happen for Artemis at this time. And the language that they use and the language that we find here um, that Paul uses is similar enough that I think what some of these women were doing is when they thought of piety, they think back to, well, you know, two years ago when I was a pagan and I was worshiping Artemis, this is how we were pious. We put our hair in a certain way. There, um, there was a type of braiding and decorative effect that seemed to be important um, in, in, for women in uh, worshiping. So I think that's what's, what's going on here, that they, Paul wants to help these women differentiate the kind of worship that he wants and what the Lord wants from the kind of experiences that, that they would have had and would have felt natural to them, you know, what worship was. The other thing to note, I think, is that they probably were flaunting their wealth and uh, that was also a sign of devotion, uh, not only for Artemis, but across the empire. Um, it, it elevated the family um, and, the, and the social prestige of the family. But of course, for the people of God, that, that absolutely is not something that um, is seen as you know, praiseworthy or something that should be, um, uh, should be touted in, in large part because it could um, insult others in the community, your brothers and sisters in Christ who have less. So those are the things I think that are going on that now when we get to uh, verse 11, we have a command, let a woman learn. That's actually in the command form. Mm -hmm. So a woman must learn. Now you think about it in the, in the gospels, we looked at the fact that Martha and Mary also had a pretty good theological understanding of things. They understood bodily resurrection, comfortable with talking with Jesus about that. And what we realize is that the synagogue structure, as well as the festival structure and the regular teaching that would happen in the temple in Jerusalem, facilitated the education of men and women. There wasn't a separation of men and women in the synagogue. So whatever was spoken, like when Jesus gets up and reads from scripture, you know, Luke four, I guess it is, you know, he's in the synagogue and he reads from scripture. And then there's a discussion that, that uh, comes out from that. Um, women heard all of that. So Jewish women knew the scripture, but these Gentile women who made up most of Paul's congregation, there was no pagan analog to religious education. So Paul commands Timothy, these women have got to be taught. Now, he doesn't say that to the men in chapter one, because there's already a, a way within society for Timothy to sit down with a bunch of men, these Gentile men, kind of go through scripture and all that. But there's no there's nothing that these Gentile women have going on where Timothy could sit down and say, okay, we're going to do school now. You know, there's not a, a, a synagogue analog here, you know? And so that's why Paul, I think here commands 
Timothy, this has got to be one of your top priorities. These women have to be educated. Mm. And then he goes on to say that I, I do not permit. Now, in the English, sometimes we hear him command that verse 12 is like a command. I do not permit. But actually, that's just in the present form. So you could translate it, I am not permitting. And I feel that's, that's a little bit less intense, maybe, um, and perhaps a little more accurate than in kind of capturing the mood of the, of the verse. Um, so let a woman learn in um, quietness and full submission is just how everybody learned. It's not special for women. Submitting to a teacher is how people did things then. So the disciples submitted to Jesus's teaching. It's nothing peculiar to women. So I'm not permitting um, is a verb that in, it, in its semantic range, in, in its possible meanings, typically has a contingency, typically is very context specific. So I'll give an example. Um, when my kids were little, maybe they would come to me and say, mom, can I have a cookie? And I'd say, I'm permitting you to have a cookie because it's, you know, seven at night, we're getting ready for bed. You had a good supper. You're just a little tired. Sure. You can have a cookie. But if they came to me and said, mom, can I have a cookie? And I look at my watch and I think, oh, it's just four o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to eat dinner in a little bit. You're going to ruin your appetite. No, I'm not permitting you to have a cookie. In other words, my permission is not so much the rightness or wrongness of wanting a cookie. It's the timing of it. And so I think for here, mm -hmm. Paul is, is using the, uh, the I am not permitting in the sense of right now, mm -hmm. given our context, this, this is not a good time. And what is it not a good time to do? Well, for women to teach. Now, there's two things that are mentioned in the rest, in the rest of this passage, uh, a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So in the uh, Greek, we have the verb to teach, and that is an infinitive. And typically, what you would say is um, a woman teach a man or teach her children, or but whatever she would teach, that particular noun would be in the accusative form. What we find, though, is that the word man in this, or men in this passage, is actually in what we call the genitive. So it's in a different form. If Paul just was going to say, I, I don't permit women to teach men, he would have had to say men in a different form than what we have here. So it's very possible, and I lean in this direction, that Paul is saying, I don't permit women to teach, full stop. And the reason I say that is I don't think Paul would ever countenance women teaching other women the wrong things. Yeah. And I do think women are teaching falsehoods mm -hmm. here, and I'll get to that in a minute. So if women are teaching falsely, then they need to stop that. In the same way that in chapter one, if they, there are at least some men, maybe there are women included in this group, um, who are teaching falsehoods and they need to stop. Then I'm, uh, you have this other word, have authority over. The infinitive is authentane. 
And it's a verb that we find almost nowhere else. It's, there's, it's not used at all in the New Testament, and it's used very rarely in Greek texts. When we find it, those handful of times, it's always really, really negative. It has the idea of authoring, but in the verb form, like offering, uh, authoring, like, or coming up with a really bad idea mm-hmm. <laughs> or doing something bad. Um, so a kind of domination. In other words, it, it's not as though Paul would ever say, I permit men to authentane women, but I don't permit women to authentane men. (laughs) You know, they would never, it's not a neutral verb. It's not a neutral concept. And it's not, it's not good in any kind of relational situation. So something's happening here where, where women are in some way, speaking and acting that goes counter to the, uh, the gospel. And I think we find what that is in, uh, in the next, um, the next passage where Paul talks about, um, Adam was four for Adam was formed first then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. So I think the, uh, uh, word translated for um, probably is Paul's way of giving his example or support for what he what he's doing here, and probably he's not referring back. Well, um, now let me let me say it this way. Um, For Paul to say that Adam was formed first and then Eve um, suggests to me that somehow in Ephesus they were reading the creation story differently. Um, what, I mean, because the creation story is very clear. Adam was formed first and then Eve. That, that's not, there's, there's nothing implied in that story that suggests uh a hierarchy of value or worth or roles or any of that stuff. It just explains how it happened. But the Artemis myth does not explain things that way. It privileges Artemis over her brother, um, Apollo. And it, if, if the Ephesians are syncretistically pulling in some of the Artemis myth, then I think things are going to get complicated when they understand Genesis. But even more, there is, within a couple of decades, not long at all, there's going to be within Christianity a movement called Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis or knowledge that completely rereads the Genesis account. And it's going to say that Eve was not deceived, but Eve revealed the creator God, Jehovah, as this second-class God. Mm. And the Gnostics um, don't like anything of the flesh or material or createdness. They're all about 
pure spirit. And so they want to leave the body and, and have their soul become more and more and more pure until they're in this, uh, you know, pure spiritual realm. And part of, so in that storyline, Eve is a heroine and she, uh, she's not deceived. She shows the deception of the creator God. Now this isn't a full-fledged teaching in Ephesus at this time. But like I said, within the early second century, especially in Alexandria, you have people teaching this. I mean, this is these are movements. And we have preserved for us Gnostic texts like the Gospel of Truth and e- even the Gospel of Thomas, um, where we see these uh, teachings emerge. So I think when at the beginning of First Timothy, we have these myths and endless genealogies and these controversial speculations. I think that is referring to the sorts of things that we later read about in these Gnostic texts, more fully developed in these Gnostic texts, about these myths of creation and these myths of these levels in heaven. Well, if the women are teaching in any way like that, then they, um, they need to learn. Yeah. They need to, they need to learn in the same way that the men, uh, in chapter one also need to, um, to get things straight. So that's what I think is going on, um, here. And, uh, the, the, and I, and I would say the, Syncretism is probably even more prevalent in the last verse here, verse 15, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. She will be saved, although some translations do the plural because it makes seems to smooth things out, but mm. actually the Greek has the singular, she will be saved. Mm. And I think Paul is uh, thinking about Eve, thinking about reinforcing the fact that Eve was deceived. Um, And, I mean, that is the story of Genesis. So, you know, we we have to, you know, that's what happened. And and Adam, who seemed to be standing right next to her, when she, she handed him the apple, he ate it. So it's not like he is not complicit in this. And it's very clear he sinned. I mean, that's throughout the New Testament as well. So they're both liable. But I think the other reason that we have this image of childbearing here um, is not only because Eve, when she bears her child, says, oh, this is, you know, God starting to fix the situation like he promised me he would, you know, when, when he cursed the serpent and he cursed the ground. But it is also, I think, a, a challenge to Artemis, who is the goddess of childbirth. She's not a fertility goddess in the first century, um, but she is the one who looks over women in their uh, childbearing. And so I think Paul is kind of playing a little bit with the childbirth because mm-hmm. these Ephesians would have so connected childbirth childbirth, midwifery with uh, Artemis. And what Paul is doing is bringing that 
back into the gospel story and reshaping it and encouraging them instead to birth the virtues. So I've heard it said, maybe one way to summarize a bit of this passage is in terms of some of the crucial things uh, when it comes to uh, women as elders and women being able to teach in the church and so on, that the general principle is learn before you teach. So learn first and then teach. So it's not that, that forever prohibition against women to teach, but you got you to gotta do some learning first. Just like men, men should learn first as well. If you're entering maybe as a Gentile into that context and you don't know anything about, you know, if you're, if you're coming in with all sorts of sort of baggage, I suppose, and it's all syncretistic, you also should learn before you teach. But in this case, it might've been the women in that setting that were stirring up some of the trouble. Well, if you just think about, Uh, Paul and his good friends, Priscilla and Aquila. We know from the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 18, verse 26, that Priscilla taught Apollos. Mm -hmm. Yes. She taught him. So either she is in direct violation of this passage, and then why would would Luke put the the story in? And, And in the other times, they're mentioned a total of six times, this couple... They're leading the house churches. They're ministering. Right? I mean, Paul praises them. I can't imagine Paul praising an uppity woman who doesn't know her mm. place. Yes. Right? Yeah. And then we have Phoebe in Romans 16, who is a deacon, and we'll get to that in a minute. But she also is the letter carrier. So she reads the letter to the Romans, to the Romans. And she, um, she then would be expected to exegete it, to explain it, to interpret it. In other words, to teach. She was the first teacher of the Book mm. of Romans. Fortunately, Romans is a very easy letter to understand, <laughs> so it wouldn't have been hard. Yeah, that's right. You know, and so I think, and then we have Yodia and Syntyche in, um, in Philippians, who are Paul's co-workers. You know, that that's not that they're doing the back office business stuff, you know, or hospitality, vacation Bible school stuff. If they're his co-workers, they are, uh, they have an influence in the theological rightness and preservation of the gospel in, uh, in Philippi. So when you just look at what Paul did, he, he allowed for women to teach and to teach men. So I, I think that uh, again, we go back to Paul being consistent and we look at what he did as well as what he taught. That helps us, I think, to understand that First Timothy wants these women and men to know what they're talking about before they open their yeah. mouth. It's good. I, maybe just one more question around this this passage in particular. I have heard recently that maybe a better way to translate the term silent is undisturbed. Is that, is that, have you heard that before? Because, you know, it does, it does make that passage feel way different, but I don't know whether or not that's within the semantic range of that term. I have not, I've not heard that argument, but I think, um, it, it makes sense to me that we could, uh, use that in as much as to our English ears, quiet means 
absence of sound and and a posture of uh, like being small. Yes. And I don't that that wouldn't be what in the Greek what's what's going here. The quietness, yeah, is is that is repose, right? Is that um, lack of distractions so you are fully focused on what the teacher has. Yeah. Okay, so first Timothy three. Yeah, yeah. Well, here um, we have Paul talking about the moral traits of leaders. These are not job descriptions. They're not job requirements. If they were, then Jesus and Paul would not be able to be leaders in the church because it requires that if you take it literally, that the man has been married. And so, or the woman has been married. So we really have to think about what are the moral qualities. And again, this makes sense when, when you learn more about what the uh, what piety was supposed to look like in the ancient world, you realize that you know people were frightened of gods or goddesses. They they wanted to supplicate them so they could get stuff from them. Um, you know this is not um, the kind of relationship that we see between God and His people Israel in the in the Old Testament, the desire, you know, to set up a system where sins can be forgiven and worship from the heart can happen. The pagans were just, uh, you know, they, they wanted to get the God's favor or at least get the gods off their back, you know? And, and so the moral like for somebody to be a priest, first of all, you usually paid money to become a priest or priestess. Um, and then you used your wealth to continue to promote who you who you were. When we have statues in the ancient world that cost a lot of money that promoted um, individuals who were religious leaders. So it so it's not it, it's worth Paul's time to write out here's what godliness looks like in a leader because they would have seen something very different growing up. So there are moral traits. Um, and the other thing to note is that the uh, pronouns that are used um, are not masculine. Hmm. Um, so in, let's say, verse two, the overseer or the um, they have here the overseer um, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. Um, and you have the, in verse four, he must manage his own family. But all, but the, the actual language in the, in the Greek is generic. It's not masculine. It means anyone. But in the English, we default to the generic masculine or we use the plural they to try and avoid that. And that can drive some purists nuts, which I can appreciate, right? So you either have to pluralize everything or you use the generic he. But then what happens is when we hear the generic he in English, we assume it means men, but the Greek is not limiting it to men. So what about verse eight? 
are they talking about men there specifically, or is that also generic? Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect. Um, no, that's generic. That's generic as well. Interesting. So is yeah. it? Well, in verse eight, my translation. I'm sorry, I was just looking here. My translation doesn't have men. Oh, okay. Um, so, yes. what does your translation just say? Just has deacons. Just it just says um, deacon in the same way deacons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My I have an, an older NIV, and it has it are to be men worthy of respect. So is that? Do you think translators here are drawing on in verse two when it says the husband of one wife? Are they taking that phrase and sort of just reading it into the rest of this, potentially? Yes, yeah. yes. And it's it's an odd term. It does it there is the word one, one woman or one wife. Um, but probably what this is referring to is the husband having sexual relations only with his wife. That is to say, not to be an adulterer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's not mandating marriage. So single men like Paul can be leaders. Um, and it's not um, necessarily forbidding remarriage. Although at this time, and, in the, and this develops in the church uh, even more, there was a sense in which you married once, but you didn't remarry. Um, the univira, the one wife or one husband um, ideal in a way to kind of honor your husband's memory or your wife's memory. You didn't remarry after mm -hmm. they died. So that, that was kind of a, not a lot of people did that, but it was kind of a one way to, well, express your love, I guess. Yeah for your uh, spouse yeah. that had passed. So it, uh, the NIV 2011 says faithful to his wife. And I think that captures well what, what is stated. Mm -hmm. And again, then that kind of prompts the question, well, why doesn't it say the wife being faithful to her husband? I think that is always implied, whether it's in the Jewish context or the Gentile mm -hmm. context. But for the Gentile man, he was not committing adultery if he went to the brothel or if he had sex with his slaves, uh, male or female, um, or if he um, was given permission by another man to have that man's wife or slave. So the, there, there wasn't a sense of monogamy in the Gentile world like there was in the Jewish world. And so these Gentile men would have had no problem at all going to uh, prostitutes. We see this also in Corinth, right? First Corinthians chapter six. Men seem to, I mean, it's not a big deal. It, it, it just simply is not a problem. So I think recognizing that this is a moral, these are moral standards that leaders need to, um, to keep. There's one one in particular that is especially important for men, and that is faithfulness to their wives um, yeah. that would not have been supported in the culture. Okay. Yeah. 
And so that same logic just continues throughout the rest of First mm-hmm. Timothy 3 then, as we look at deacons right. and, and so on. That's right. That's right. Yep. That's great. Yep. Well, anything else when it comes to First Timothy 3 that we should know? We're nearing the end of our textual deep dive, which has been awesome. I've really enjoyed this, Lynn. I appreciate it. Well, I think it makes sense. Yeah, me too. Um, I think it makes sense that Paul's going to talk about what good leaders look like because he's just in chapters one and two said, look, you've got problems. You have got problems. And then in in the remaining uh, chapters, he says, here's what they what they need to look like. Here's Here's what they should aspire to. Obviously, they don't have to have children right? It's not a mandate. That'd be almost impossible for, uh, in the ancient world, for someone to mandate just because of the high mortality rate. So, you know, it's not job description, it's moral um, uh, moral character. It's great. Okay, so let me yeah. ask the question about Romans very quickly. So does Romans actually, and we won't deep dive here, but does Romans contribute something to this conversation? Because we do find some, some interesting things in the book of Romans. Mm, yeah, well, I think so. About half the people mentioned there are women and they're doing stuff. Um, so we have Phoebe, who is Paul's benefactor. Sometimes uh, translations will say helper, which is really weak. It's, it's too weak of a translation. Um, but she's a deacon in the church of Cancrea, which is uh, the eastern port of Corinth. So she's just right there in Corinth. Um, so she's a deacon. So she would fit. She she wasn't a recent convert. Um, she had a good uh, uh, reputation. Um, she held the truths of the faith with a clear conscience. I mean, that's, that's her. And so Paul says, yeah, you take this letter uh, to the Romans uh, for me. We also have Andronicus and Junia, Junia is a female name, um, and it's either her brother or her husband, uh, Andronicus. They're together. Paul calls them apostles. And you can translate the word apostle as messenger. Um, maybe that's what he means, but I think the, the term has a little bit more weight. Most people believe it has a little bit more weight here as a leader in the church. Um, and, and they are uh, well-known among the apostles, revered among the apostles. There's a, an argument that says they were well-known to this other group of apostles. They aren't apostles, but they're just well-known to this group. Uh, but that particular grammatical argument really hasn't taken off. It, it's, it's not a strong argument. So we have a woman who's an apostle. Um, and, uh, and then we have Priscilla and Aquila that are mentioned. So we have women who are leading in the church. Um, they are, yeah, they're, they're handling the gospel material in such a way that it's, it's faithful. They're teaching faithfully. They're representing God, uh, faithfully. And even to the point that, uh, in the case of, uh, Junia, she's in prison for the sake of the gospel, similar to Paul. So I think when people 
well, I want to say like two things before I conclude. The one thing I want to mention about the word apostle also is some people say, well, women can't be leaders or hold the supreme decision-making role in a church because Jesus chose just 12 apostles as he, tw- he only chose men as his 12 apostles. What I would say with that is the symbolism of 12 and the men being Jewish are way more important than their maleness. Jesus chose 12 to represent the 12 tribes. Jesus in his messianic role is establishing new Israel. These men are to judge Israel. This this is a very eschatological uh, hope that is partially being realized now. This kingdom of God is uh, breaking forth. And the expectation always was that Israel would be whole and one, the 12 tribes coming together. together in some way, somehow, you know, God restoring Israel. And so the 12, these 12 apostles stand for the 12 tribes. There, they, there could not be a Gentile man among them. And there weren't going to be 11 or nine or 15. It was 12 Jews who were men because they stood for the 12 tribes. So I think the argument that Jesus didn't choose a woman to be one of the 12 just really misses the symbolism completely. But then to think about um, leaders like Junia as an apostle, I think of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 4 about what an apostle really is. And you read that and you think, gosh, no one's going to sign up to be an Mm -hmm. apostle. They're last in line. They're, They're beaten down. They're, you know, clay jars and to draw from second Corinthians. And that's Junia's experience. She's not after power or influence or fame or followers on social media. She is committed to the gospel come what may. And women modeled that as well as men, of course, in in the New Testament. And men can follow that model of women like Junia who were willing to be imprisoned and maybe face death uh, for the gospel. That's great. I'm going to ask one more question, but before I do, if you are watching this and you're curious about some of the other tricky passages, because there are a few more, we didn't dig too much into a handful of them in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Peter 3, even in Titus, we can find a little bit around eldership and and authority and things like that. Uh, Tune into future episodes. Those episodes could be available if you're watching right now. We'll have a few other conversations with a a handful of other scholars, and they're going to sort of open up some of those passages for us. So let me ask one more question, and then we're going to shift to this this whole conversation around Christian women in the patristic world, which is going to be a great conversation. So One aspect of this conversation, it revolves around the definition of elder or the definition maybe of leadership. And so we tend to tie it to authority. That's what I think of even as I think of of being an elder. So are there other ways of thinking about the terms elder and leadership? 
Yeah, I think of Mark's gospel, what is it, um, 8, 9, and 10, I think those chapters. Three different times, Jesus makes clear that the Son of Man will suffer, hmm. yeah. right? And the disciples' response is one of absolute rejection, surprise, and then rejection. That's not for you, Lord. You're the Messiah. We want to be on your right hand and your left hand. We want to take charge. We're going to run this thing, this kingdom. Um, and Jesus says, oh, I, don't, don't act like the Gentiles who lorded over. That's not the way it is to be with you. You're to serve each other. And then he indicates even himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And in case they totally missed all of that, we look in John chapter 13, where Jesus washes their feet. And that really bothers at least Peter, maybe others, but at least Peter, you can't do that. You can't humble yourself in that way. And Jesus says, oh yeah, th this I'm showing you what leadership looks like. And so I think the Jesus did make hard calls. He had to, you know, he was brave in challenging the Pharisees. Um, he uh, taught with authority and didn't sort of back down from what the gospel called him to do, but he also prayed extensively and he drew on the uh, Spirit's wisdom. So I would say our leadership, our discussions about leadership have to think more about how people in who we are responsible for, how they are flourishing. And I think even in the secular world, I don't read that much in leadership books, but there are a couple coming out now, uh, people who have been in, in the leadership world and helping, you know, CEOs of big companies be leaders. And there's a lot of conversation about how do we help those who we're leading or who we have responsible responsibility to, how they are flourishing. And I would say that's very, that's very godly. Our churches should be set up in such a way that that, that that's what we, that's what we have. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. We're going to shift it to to this book that you've written with Amy Brown Hughes called Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the Second through Fifth Centuries. And I know Luana dug into that book, as I mentioned earlier, and has loads of questions, many of which we won't even have time for her to ask. But, <laughs> but she's got a handful. So uh, she's going to go ahead and kind of lead us through this segment of our conversation. All right. Great. Like Tyler said, I, I've been really enjoying this. It's so it's such a different time period from what I'm used to working in. Um, and uh, it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, one of the things I, I noticed um, at the, throughout the book is a discussion of uh, the idea of responsible remembrance and uh, highlighting the stories of histories unrepresented. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what uh, responsible remembrance might look like and why does it matter to remember women who served over 1600 years ago um, who you know, aren't in the Bible? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, 
what Amy and I were hoping to do with responsible remembrance is to be responsible for our own biases, like recognize we're coming at the text as people who've lived, like you say, 1600 years later. So our own biases, we also recognize we're coming with our own questions, which wouldn't have necessarily been the questions of the communities that first received uh, these texts. Um, Also, we wanted to, um, in our responsible remembrance, deconstruct older patriarchal readings of, of women. So the hope was that we would be advocates, but responsible advocates for the, the women whose um, lives are talked about in these texts or whose own life, I mean, by their own hand is, is being presented. So I, that, that was our, our hope that we would be responsible advocates. And I think part of that is, um, History can inspire us. Uh, it um, another, and and stories inspire us. Um, stories can show us possibilities. I think what's the phrase now? If you if you can see it, you can be it, or something like that. You know, a catchy little phrase. But I think we recognize that, you know, if you never see a particular type of person doing something, then you, you just never imagine that it could happen. I have a funny story with this. When, uh, when our kids were little, there was a family up the street whose dad worked out of town, usually for two weeks, and then he'd be home for a long weekend. Well, one day I was in the garage and I was busy fixing our son's bike. And this little, one of the little boys from that family walked down and he just looked at me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm fixing our son's bike. No, what, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm fixing our son's bike. He said, moms don't fix bikes. Only dads fix bikes. And I thought, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> the mom probably is thinking, hey, you wait till your dad gets home. Moms don't do bikes, you know. And so this kid was stunned that, wait, there's a mom and she's fixing a bike. How can that be? But I think in a, in a way, when we read these stories of women who were martyrs or women who uh, wrote these incredible theological texts or women like Constantine's mother who pretty much shaped the liturgy of the church in the, the Holy Sepulchre there in Jerusalem, it, it fires up our own imaginations, you know, and we, we start to imagine things we hadn't before. So that, that's, um, that's some, I think, the reasons why we wanted to do responsible remembrance. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I, I'm just here e- echoes of, of things you hear so often about the representation of all kinds of different, of, of different people and how important uh, people are finding that these days. Um, so like, like I said, um, we're talking about the second through fifth centuries, which is it's dramatically different from, from the world we live in right now. Um, and, and we got into this a little bit when we're talking about the biblical passages too. Um, but perhaps you could just, uh, tell us a little bit about what the importance of learning to think like an historian and why studying, uh, the church, again, we're, we're not talking about the Bible, but this is still important stuff. But, but why, why do we need to, how does this kind of history, um, 
help us to understand God's design for the church today. Right, right. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I want to underline the this idea that the second, especially the second and third centuries are so different than what we experience today and also are different from the first century. The first century, the New Testament uh, world, the church really was part of Judaism from seen from kind of the outside, right? They were... Um, there was a strong Jewish leadership, um, and the Gentiles, you know, were, were starting to come in. By the second century, uh, you have the Jewish population in um, Galilee and Judea, in Alexandria, uh, just decimated because of revolts that happened and the vicious crackdown. And so, uh, by the Romans, and so. Um, the Jewish population has decreased there. It's still strong in uh, some of the other diaspora places, and it's still strong in Babylon, which was outside of the Roman Empire at this time. But you had then also a rise in the number of Gentiles in the church. These Gentiles were leaving their pagan past and becoming believers, right? They remained Gentiles, but they would now be believers. And so there was an antagonism that came with that from the wider society because they were seen as traitors, as atheists, as, as a threat to the, to the general order of society. And so we, we need to, as historians, um, take that context really uh, seriously. Um, and then I would say, secondly, what historians do well is they highlight stories, they highlight narrative, and they pay attention sometimes to the little details that help fill that out. I think historians are careful to distinguish between what is ideal, like in a philosophical text, and what is real, like a situation of a husband and wife raising their children. You know, And so I think the historian's task is really important there. Historians often rely on material culture. So we have combs or fabric or other household items of the ancient world that help us fill out the picture of what, especially what women did and what their lives were like. So that's where I would say reading like an historian is so helpful as we try to bring to life uh, these, especially martyrs in the second century off the page. Um, I, as you were talking, I, it just struck me when you're talking about the kind of persecution uh, Christians were were under um, because they weren't the dominant culture as before, before Constantine, um, and so perhaps we can learn some things uh, now that we're talking more and more about being in a post-Christian world. Uh, the the threats may be different, or you might not want to characterize them as threats, but. Um, not being in the dominant position is the same kind of thing that these, the people that you're writing about. Um, that was, um, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, you, the, we're, we're talking about all these people and, you know, I'm going through the book and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm a historian and I've been to Bible college and I don't recognize so many of these names. And I was wondering, um, like this book covers just a few of the significant women. I was wondering if you could tell us maybe your thoughts on why so few of us know about these stories um, now in the 21st century. 
Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And your, your reaction is the same as mine was in when, when I first came to know them was, wait, where, where have you been all my life? You know, and, uh, and the same with students now when I teach a class on this uh, very subject. Part of it, I think, is as Protestants, um, we don't know the lives of saints. And these women were remembered in the liturgical year of the, of the church as saints. And so we lose that. <clears throat> then I think also um, the patristic period, the period of the church fathers, um, feels like um, too Catholic as opposed to Protestant. And so we're reluctant there. And then I think also sometimes in terms of studying women, the church fathers are seen as anti-woman. And so there was a a disinterest kind of like, why would I want to look at them anyway? And then I think also reading the martyr accounts, that's, it's not always for the faint of heart. Like I don't necessarily pick up a martyrdom account right before I go to bed, you know, it's just something relaxing, you know, they're intense. They're, they're really intense and they're challenging and it's good for us to see them. But um, yeah, it, it's just a different mindset that we have to get in when we read them. I I was when you said also that about the how Catholic it can feel as in Rome Roman Catholic, um, and uh, I it so that can be threatening um, potent, potentially uh, for Protestants, especially if we're unfamiliar in working through through that kind of pre um, pre Reformation kind of world. But I was also wondering if perhaps you've come across where people are struggling with the idea of wow, things aren't settled. People are arguing about really basic theological kinds of tenets. And, you know, it's before we get, you know, like the Nicene Creed and different things like that. Are you finding that people react like that? That is very unsettling to think there was a time when like the Bible just, um, I, I just remember when I was growing up, you're thinking, okay, well, this is how it is. And this is yeah. how it's always been. <laughs> but but do you, do you find that with your students or other people that there's just a feeling of um, un, the unsettledness is a little threatening? Perhaps, yeah. And I think the you know the concept of rule of faith, regula fide, that seemed to govern the church um, as the New Testament was um, being pulled together. And and you're right, the second century especially was a time where the Christians like Justin Martyr, and I like to point out that wasn't his surname, Martyr, but it was a title. <laughs> That's how, how his life ended. Um, all the way up to Irenaeus, um, that they, they used this idea of rule of faith that helped um, preserve and protect the gospel and how it was expressed in the uh, gospels, the four gospels, as well as Paul's letters. Um, yeah, but you're right. There is this, the, the Old Testament was certainly very important as it was uh, becoming pretty, pretty firmly established during this time. Um, but they would have relied on testimony and, and um, not hearsay, but um, witnesses of others that could confirm what uh, what was said. So it's a different sort of 
authority, relying on authority. Although I have to say that today we also, it, certainly in my life, if if I have someone I really respect to recommend something, I'll believe that over any kind of uh, public claim of that this product or whatever is good or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think also also just the the unsettledness of this time because it was such a time of violence. And I think that that can be, for, for me, a, a, a shock. It's very mm-hmm. different than what I'm used to. Exactly. That's, uh, um, yeah, such a different kind of, kind of world. And we don't realize how much being post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment affects the way we think that makes us so different from them. Um, is there a story that um, you most love to tell about one of these one of these women uh, from this era of the early church? And we can't talk about all of them, but do you have one that you especially love to tell us about? Well, I think uh, one that, and you're right. It's like who's your favorite child? You know, you just can't answer that. But um, but today, right now, as I'm thinking about it, um, I really like the story of Blandina. Um, it's she is one of several martyrs um, who um, face all kinds of horrific tortures. This is, again, one of those stories you don't want to read, like on a full stomach or right before you go to bed. But what I love about her story, she's a slave woman. And yet at one point in the story, when she is put on a stake, she represents to everyone else Christ, like they see her and it's as though they see Christ. And that brief note, I think, captures what the martyrs did, both men and women, to the the watching world, especially to the uh, believers. They could see Christ, the promise of resurrection as we participate in his sufferings. And the fact that a woman, a slave woman, could do that is it just exemplifies to me the gospel in its whole, right? That it's we can look to a slave woman as representing Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's remarkable. Yeah. And yeah. um, uh, I think it was chapter seven um, that you would talk about uh, how Roman society basically had two categories for women married and not yet married. And um, this is an idea that resurfaces later on. My head is very often in the 19th century, and it brings to mind all of those really dreary portrayals of the spinsters in in Victorian literature. It's almost like a life not worth living, right, to to not be married, um, which is just sad. Um, Um, so uh, these and these the tendrils of these ideas have extended right into our own century right now. So how do stories uh, about women like Thecla and uh, Macrina speak to what it means for women to be disciples of Christ um, outside and against those kind of ideals? Yes, yes. So Thecla is a first century or second century, early second century uh, figure. Um, probably historical in some way, but her story becomes very much a hagiography, very much, there are a lot of remarkable things that happen to her in this story as it does to so often to these saints. Um, but she becomes a role model for Macrina, but for other women and men and think there's two things. There's a life of celibacy 
and there's a rejection of their wealth and all that it brings. So those are kind of the two things that I think are important for us today to think about. Thecla remains a virgin. She doesn't want to marry. And she doesn't, and, and I think the, the celibate life uh, is important in that first, it, it um, demonstrates or foreshadows, I'll say foreshadows our resurrection life in our raised and glorified bodies when we will not have uh, sexual uh, needs or appetites. We won't have physical need for food. You know, our, our immortal bodies, which are imperishable, will take their life solely from the life of Christ in which we continue to, uh, to live. And so their, their asceticism which included celibacy, was not a self-hatred of the body. Far from it. It was a love of the resurrection body. And they were thinking about and, and tried to model the sort of uh, focus and, and values that would uh, pertain to the life of the resurrection. So that's how to understand their uh, their celibacy from a theological perspective. Now, I realized there were also both men and women who who did self harm, you know, at this time. Um, but what I I'm talking about with Thecla and then with Macrina is their theological perspective on why they they were celibate is this idea of preparing themselves for the perfection that awaited them in the new heavens and the new earth with their imperishable, raised, glorified bodies. Then the other thing with Thecla and Macrina, both were wealthy. And that's um, something that in the patristic world, there was a, so the second through the fifth century, a real concern about how, uh, how money might corrupt. So the family, having, being married, having children, if you were a wealthy Roman, that was all about promoting your family's honor, your family's wealth, your place in society, which was real high. Um, and many of these women took very seriously the idea that the wealthy could not enter the kingdom. That Jesus is words, it's easier, right, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And they they not only rejected the Roman virtues of um, social hierarchy and family above everything else, but they, they also saw what the wealth could do in terms of crippling their own, um, uh, their their own piety. And we, um, yeah. So I think the, they, these martyrs like Thecla and then the, um, Macrina who was, um, her brother Gregory of Nyssa thinks about her as a martyr, although she passed peacefully. Um, but the way she lived, her devotion was such that he could think of her as a martyr. Um, she, she also, um, yeah, she, she tried to live uh, in light of the resurrection, including 
strongly critiquing wealth. And I think that critiquing wealth is especially helpful for today's Western church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So many, so many things about when you're not following uh, the expectations of, of your own society. Um, there's so many, like Tyler said, there's so many other things. So I, I, I do recommend, recommend uh, the book to the, to the listeners. There's lots in there. I love how you talk about methodology and how to, uh, reconcile the distance between the our time period and the historical period you're talking about. I just have one more one more question. Um, what would you say to uh, the single woman who desires to be all that God designed her to be? If there's anything else you would want to say, or or to the married woman, um, something that we haven't brought uh, important theme we haven't brought out yet. Well, I would just say that actually to both. Um, defining as single or as married um, are temporary categories. They're categories for this age. Um, they're relational in, a, in terms of the biological family. Um, and those are beautiful things. Uh, I'm not trying to condemn them, but they are temporary, right? They're temporary categories. There are also eternal categories that exist even now in the church as Uh, The church is God's family, and we are co-heirs with Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have this, scholars call it a fictive kinship. So we're, it's not a a biological kinship, it's fictive, but I don't really like that phrase because it's actually more real than anything, you know, it's in Christ. And so to the uh, single person, I would encourage you, um, be in close relationships. But I would also say to the married woman, be in close relationships outside of, you know, your husband maybe being your best friend, right? That it have close relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, that, um, that will live into what is eternal about us, not our category as married, unmarried, widowed or widower. Um, and, and I would say then, not that you asked, but I'll extend this a little bit. I, I hope that men will uh, be able also to form friendships with women, that it's not just women having friendships with other women, but that men can see women as human, <laughs> like Dorothy Sayers, you know, her great little pamphlet, Are Women Human?, uh, answer is yes. Um, And as men can see women as human, as friends, um, and not simply in sexual categories, single, married, you know, um, that, that, that I think would, would help. Uh, We don't have a lot of pictures of that, but in the ancient world, there are some like Jerome and Paula uh, seem to have a friendship as much as Jerome, who seems like kind of a cranky person. Um, but as much as he could have friendships, I think, you know, there, there was that one where they just delighted in the same things. They love to geek out on scripture and that, that, that would be a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, to use a modern example, I love the Harry Potter series. And in that series, Harry, the main character and Hermione, uh, also a main character, 
are very good friends. They never become romantically involved. They're always just friends. And I think we need to see more of that. And at times we can see that in some of the writings in the, in the early church, but it, it's a call for us even today to, to be that. Thank you. Uh, and, and like you said earlier, there's a, a lot to be inspired with the conversation um, about uh, how some of those things can look. Lynn, I do want to ask maybe one final question before I give you the floor to share a little bit about some additional resources. There's some great resources out there that I know you're connected with. And, and so we'll give you a chance to just talk briefly about those. But my question, I want to sort of bring together the first part of our conversation and the second part of our conversation. Do we see continuity between what we find in what we've talked about around women in leadership in the Bible and the first four centuries? And if there's discontinuity, are there some clear sort of reasons why we might see discontinuity? I think there is a continuity in that women continue to lead. How they lead looks very different. So in Paul's congregations, these are maybe, I don't know, 10 or 20 people still somewhat under the umbrella of Judaism. They are getting the attention of outsiders, but they're not, uh, it's not the age of the martyrs. I mean, it will be, Paul will be uh, martyred, Peter will be martyred. So, but as Paul's writing the letters, we don't have that. And you find women who have uh, positions of responsibility and leadership in, in the congregations. When you get to the second century and you have uh, the second and third, the age of the martyrs, leadership changes there. Leadership now becomes standing up for the gospel, declaring like Blandina did or Perpetua, I am a Christian. And Blandina and Perpetua were leaders. I mean, that leaders of their little group who all went into the arena together and died together. But the men who were part of those groups looked to these women as uh, leaders, as, as those who would support, encourage, and stand fast and be a role model for them. And so just like uh, Priscilla taught uh, Apollos on uh, what needed to, what he needed to know, so too Thecla or Perpetua taught believers what it meant to, to stand fast even unto death. And then beyond that, when you move into the post-Constantine world, there you have especially wealthy women using their money uh, to lead in the church by creating opportunities for both men and women to learn scripture more, to write more, um, and to uh, contribute uh, aid to those. So the continuity is, is women are uh, living out the gospel in important ways and are viewed as having um, responsi responsibility. I mean, not, not all women, obviously, just like not all yeah. men, but, um, but enough women that, um, yeah, they, they become role yeah. models. That's great. Thank you, Lynn. We've been going for about two hours and it's been wonderful. Thank you. I feel like I could go for another hour. Um, 
I want to give you a chance to to talk about some of these other resources that are available because if you're watching and you think I still have some questions, I'm still curious about X, Y, or Z, you can actually go to certain places that Lynn, I know you're connected with uh, to find out more. One is called Seminary Now through Northern Seminary. The other is the Alabaster Jar. And the final one is the Center for Women in Leadership. So can you share a bit about each one of those if people are curious? Sure, sure. Well, I'm, I'm here at Northern Seminary and um, we offer a subscription-based um, resource called Seminary Now, which is uh, sometimes framed around books or sometimes framed around topics like uh, preaching, where there are video series of maybe 10 or so in, in a particular class, and you get a, an expert that talks about particular subjects. So uh, Beth Felker-Jones uh, has one series on her book, Faithful, which talks about marriage from a theological standpoint. I have one on women in the New Testament. So you can check out all across the board in uh, counseling, in um, issues of race, in uh, things like preaching. It's just all across the board. So that's seminary now. And there are ways, if you do enough of those, um, to even bundle them together to earn credit towards a degree here at, at Northern. Then we, ha uh, we have a podcast. Uh, I have a podcast called Alabaster Jar. And it's a weekly podcast that interviews women, often authors, um, from a variety of... Um, Traditions, often they're also academics, but not always. Some are church practitioners, worship leaders, authors. So um, that's, a, that's a focus, though, on just helping women who um, just want to know more about like what we talked yeah. about yeah. today. Um, and then here at Northern, along with the degree programs, um, in women in theology, there's an MA in women in theology. We also offer a DMIN in women theology and leadership. Um, that there is a um, uh, a center called the Center for Women in Leadership that tries to uh, provide resources for women who are in in ministry of all different sorts. It could be uh, NGOs. It uh, doing vacation Bible study, uh, just women who want to learn more about themselves as leaders. We did a webinar on the imposter syndrome, for example. Hmm. Um, and then we have a big conference called Tove for Women. Tove meaning goodness, creating, creating a life of flourishing for women. Our second annual conference will be coming up October 21st. And you can certainly come to Chicago for that, but it'd also be live streamed. And you can get more information about that when you look at the um, website, the Center for Women in Leadership at Northern. So, yeah. That's so great. those are some of the other resources that are and there. It's great for yeah. people to know about those because I know, you know, even if a question hasn't formed yet, you know, in, in a few months, in six months, as those questions emerge, it's good to know where to go to maybe find a conversation about that or to be able to tune into a class or whatnot. We love you guys at Northern Seminary. 
I know we geek out on you guys. We love, you know, Scott McKnight and Beth Felker and Lynn. It's great to, to deep dive a little bit more, uh, in, in terms of your background. And we very much appreciate, uh, you taking this time, uh, to, to meet with us. You know, this is for, you know, primarily our local church here in Coburg, Ontario. And, uh, the fact that you would take the time, you know, invest the time in a church that's navigating a conversation around women in leadership. Um, we feel very fortunate, uh, to have had you here today and to be able to hear just a deep analysis. You have a deep passion and it's great to hear your story as well of, um, of, you know, your relationship with kind of the church. And as you've, you've kind of had to deal with your own challenges to get to where you are and, and even some of the fun irony of where you're at now. So yeah. thank you very much. We appreciate it. Well, I have so appreciated uh, the conversations and I, like you said, I, I could keep going. Of course, I'm a professor, so I can just keep talking and talking and talking, you know, but, uh, but this is um, a passion of mine. I'm always learning new things and excited as the church uh, continues to uh, work to be faithful uh, for its people and for the wider world. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be part of that journey you. with your church. Thank you. We appreciate it. Have a wonderful week, Lynn, and hopefully we can connect again uh, sometime soon.